You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we checked in with the state's homeless coordinator, Scott Morishige. State lawmakers are going to conference over critical legislation in the waning days of the legislative session. Morishige gives a snapshot of what bills are in play to deal with our affordable housing and homeless crisis. I think we're very hopeful that the legislature will move forward with approving an extension of some of the programs that we know have been working to help address homelessness and provide additional housing for this population. So for example, the Ohana Zones pilot program, we're looking to have that program extended right now. It would sunset in June of next year, but there's two bills moving through the legislature and conference. House Bill 2512 and Senate Bill 3168 that would extend the program and provide an additional appropriation of $15 million or potentially more for that program so we can provide additional projects. And Ohana Zones has been really critical because just on Oahu, it's helped us bring up the Honu program that the city and county and police operate at Old Stadium Park and Waipahu Cultural Garden. And it's also helped bring up a number of supportive housing projects for seniors and other subsets of the larger homeless population. The other thing that we're hoping to see come out of the legislature is really uh, continued historic investment in affordable housing. There's one bill in particular, Senate Bill 2372, that currently includes an appropriation of $300 million for the Rental Housing Revolving Fund for affordable housing development. And that really would go a long way in closing the gap in housing that we're seeing, not just on Oahu, but statewide. So those are the things we're kind of keeping an eye out for for now. And, you know, we did see the numbers released for the point in time count, the homeless census on the neighbor islands, you know, a slightly up. What's your sense as to what's happening there? Well, I think one of the things that I see as a positive trend that came out of the neighbor island numbers that were released just recently is that we saw continued decreases in family homelessness. So for families with minor children in the home, those numbers continued to decline. I believe between 2020 and 2022, it was over a 20% decrease just on the neighbor islands. And there was a decline, particularly in unsheltered families with minor children as well. So I think that's something that's a positive note. On the other side of things, I think, as you mentioned, we are seeing slight increases overall and increases in unsheltered homelessness on the other islands. I think it really shows what the different needs are with families versus single adults, because the increase in unsheltered homelessness, I think, is mainly among single adults and adult-only households. So it really, I think, shines a spotlight on what are the unique needs of that population that we need to focus on. Does it take looking at additional things such as getting more connection to substance use treatment, mental health treatment, and those types of services, as well as the continued focus on housing? And, you know, there was a recent tragic case. There was a couple that, you know, reports say were sleeping in their car. You know, a car hit them and and they died. And, and, you know, we were hearing that they were unsheltered. Well, I think, you know, what providers, homeless outreach providers have been telling us is they are seeing more people they encounter that are living in their vehicles. What we're trying to encourage is just having our outreach providers make connections with those individuals so we're able to understand where they are, how to continue working with them and servicing them. And we're also sharing information about strategies that work on other islands to deal with people who are living in their vehicles. So my office, we convene uh, monthly webinars for providers statewide. And last month, we actually highlighted the work of a group of faith-based organizations on Hawaii Island that actually have a network of safe parking spots in Hilo that has been in place for the past few years. It's actually connected to the larger homeless system. And we're trying to model those types of practices so they can be replicated in different parts of the state. Also make sure we continue to support the ongoing efforts of our outreach workers who really have been frontline providers throughout the entire pandemic and going out into the field day in and day out, despite you know what else is going on in the world. Well, so if that has been successful and you know, where else are you thinking of trying it out? Well, I, I think what made it successful is because it's a community-led effort. And I think what's important to remember is government cannot take on the issue of addressing homelessness alone. We really need to partner with other organizations. So we're hopeful that we can partner with faith-based groups or other organizations that may have space that they can use as safe parking areas, just kind of share the best practices of what's been working in East Hawaii. 
if there are any organizations that are interested in helping out or wanting to connect with any of our mainstream homeless providers, they can always contact my office. And our phone number is 586-0193, or they can email us at govhomelessness at hawaii.gov. And do you know anything more about that particular case of the couple? Because you know, they were um, just parked on the side of the road. You know, I don't know any more specific details about that, but I think we are also in discussion with Hawaii Department of Transportation, talking to our homeless service providers about what feedback they have for DOT about how we can address safety in different areas, such as maybe increasing lighting in certain areas, looking at other ways to kind of reduce these types of incidents from recurring in the future. Anything else you can share with us just on... Uh you know, the homeless in Chinatown, you know, and the efforts there, you know, there's been a lot of movement. River of Life, you know, the, the other uh, shelter that was uh, catering to the homeless. One thing I think people really should take away is when you hear about these things, oftentimes it's framed as just either the city or state taking on certain things. And I think really something people should know is the state and the city and county, we partner on a regular basis in all of these different efforts. So in Chinatown, for example, while Mayor Blanchardi's administration, I think, has really taken the lead in working with Prosecutor Alm and the community members and businesses on the ground in Chinatown, the state has also been a partner in that as well, particularly working with Prosecutor Alm's office to make sure that the mental health and substance abuse treatment services for people being encountered in the Weed and Seed Initiative are really getting access to treatment services and also making sure that we can really be a partner in responding to specific referrals for individuals who are very severely mentally ill and may need additional support. So for example, my office frequently gets referrals either directly from the city or from community members in Chinatown about particular individuals where they want additional follow-up. And we'll we'll loop in with our homeless service providers and mental health providers such as IHS to provide that additional follow-up. So I do think we are seeing a more positive movement in Chinatown, but it's really something where the city and state and the entire community, including our nonprofit providers, are really working hand-in-hand to make sure that continues moving forward. We've been hearing from Scott Morishige, the state's homeless coordinator. We did ask about two Konka'aka facilities that are slated to close, the Family Assessment Center as well as the Next Step Shelter in Konka'aka Park. He says uh, discussions about relocating those services are still ongoing. Vacation rentals have long divided communities across the state. On Oahu, a bill to curb illegal rentals is before Mayor Rick Blangiardi after the Honolulu City Council passed the measure on April 13th. The mayor is expected to sign it tomorrow. Our listeners have been sharing their feedback on the bill via our talkback line. We start with John Wolstein. I have a large house in Pololo, and the neighbors have no objection whatsoever to short-term rentals. And I think it might be unfair competition. And I also think that the hotels are short-sighted because they're putting a lot of pressure on the city to curtail bed and breakfast. At the same time, there are a lot of people that can either afford bed and breakfast but not a hotel. And it looks to me like the city and the hotels are creating a monopoly. Thank you. And here's an email from Loretta Riley. She says, I heard some good arguments on both sides. However, the real estate on Oahu is off the charts. I am a renter. Very lucky to have a long-term rental going on three years now. Yet I do not have a full kitchen, so I am constantly looking for something comparable to my current apartment. When I look at the rentals where I live in the Kailua area, the rental rates are obscene. I work in the healthcare industry, make a decent wage, yet it still costs me three weeks' salary to pay the rent. Being a single parent add daily living expenses, and it can quickly become unmanageable. So let's just be a little more real here. As long as the government is willing to pay these astronomical housing stipends and homeowners continue to rent illegal vacation rentals, there is little hope for the average working resident to become a homeowner. And here is a voicemail from another listener. My name is Jessica Woolley. I am very concerned about the impacts on residents if this bill passes. It's a totally unstudied, massive change in land use that is going to hurt a lot of families who are struggling already. 
it is being rushed through for the benefit of the hotel. It's also a concern because there's the current investigation of Dean Uchida at DPP and his financial gain from the hotel industry profits that will result if this bill passes. And that investigation is ongoing. So until it's closed, we shouldn't be moving forward with this massive change that's going to hurt people and the economy. Mahalo. Thanks for the feedback. Do you have something to share? Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today takes us to Kauai, and we look at a eroding coastline there. Reporter Brittany Light joins us. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning, Catherine. So we're talking about what, West Kauai? Yeah, we're talking about the west side of the island, and specifically the story is is centered there because Kauai County uh, a couple of years ago purchased a 400-acre property and, and you know, has hosted many, many community meetings to figure out what to do with it. And one potential idea that the county has is to use some of that property to offer property swaps uh, for people who live on the coastline and uh, live in an area that might be underwater someday, someday soon. Now, this is kind of a bold move, you know, to have managed retreat uh, and to be having discussions about this now. Yeah, you know, managed retreat is, you know, for many people, it's a little hard to wrap your head around. Um, You know, in theory, it's pretty simple. People who live in areas that may not be inhabitable uh, in the future with sea level rise and coastal erosion and and all these things that scientists tell us are are coming. Um, You know, the idea is to kind of find a new place for them to live so that there isn't displacement of of local people and also so that we don't lose the beach because we know if we don't retreat uh, from the shoreline, you know, the beach won't have room to move in. Um, So, of course, we don't want to lose our beaches. That's the other factor. Well, you know, you did talk with Chip Fletcher. Um, He's with the University of Hawaii's uh, School of uh, Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at Manoa. Uh, And he had a line in your story says, people don't realize that they're doomed when it comes to beachfront houses. Yeah, that's, you know, that's what he said. He's he's saying, you know, he guarantees every, you know, beachfront house is is going to fall into the ocean (laughs) Um, or something like that. And it's interesting because what's unique about this area that I, I centered my reporting on is that the beach there is actually growing. It's getting bigger. And that's because of a, a nearby harbor and how the harbor, you know, this man-made harbor is, is changing natural sand movement. So, you know, Chip Fletcher says, you know, this, this phenomenon, this kind of artificial growing of the beach, it's delaying the effects of sea level rise and coastal erosion. But uh, it's interesting because, you know, it's hard for some of these homeowners to really, um, you know, want to talk about property swaps when their beach is bigger than it's, you know, really ever been in their lifetime. Yeah, so they're probably doubting some of these dire predictions. But, you know, we've got a situation here on Oahu where we've already seen one North Shore home fall in the water and, you know, it was rescued. And then we have another homeowner that's bringing in sand to try and save his. But he's in trouble for doing that. Right. So, you know, managed retreat is something that's talked about. It's never been done on a large scale in Hawaii. Um, You know, and it raises a lot of questions. What's fair? You know, should taxpayers fund some of these property swaps or, you know, is it really all on the homeowner? Um, You know, how much should government get involved? Many of the people I spoke to for this story said, you know, they want the government to back off. They'll deal with it. (laughs) So. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, it, it it is a hard thing to give up if you've got beachfront property. Maybe it's been in your family forever and you're thinking of preserving it for your children and grandchildren. And you're like, what? Move inland? Exactly. You know, these people have so much invested in their homes. And, you know, often when we think about, you know, coastal beachfront property, we think of, you know, very 
you know, wealthy folks. And, and that's not always the case. Um, some people have kind of been grandfathered into beachfront land. And, and you know, if, if they were to be displaced, they don't have another home somewhere else that they could go live in. So, you know, this, this affects people of, of all different demographics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, it's a hard reality to have to deal with. Do you stay or do you go? Exactly. And I think, you know, for many of these people in this one spot where the beach is getting bigger, they're not thinking about going at all. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see just how this plays out. But thanks so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's reality check. Uh, you can check out her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says America is in trouble. Social media was supposed to connect us. It was supposed to make it effortless to talk to everybody and anyone. But by 2014, it was clear, no, it's actually fragmenting us into little bubbles, little shards that we can't communicate. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. How he says America's institutions got stupider and how we can recover. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world... Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual and in-person courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin May 31st. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Don't Belong Here. That's the title of a book by author and journalist Elizabeth Becker. She was a war correspondent for the Washington Post and correspondent for the New York Times, and she served as NPR senior editor for the Foreign Desk. She published this book last year during the pandemic. The paperback has just been released. We caught up with Becker last week while she was here in the islands to talk about another book on over-tourism. But this book features three female war correspondents from three different countries. I wrote this book because when you think about women war correspondents, usually, you know, you think Martha Gellhorn, World War II, Spanish Civil War, and then you jump to probably Christiane Amanpour, Gulf War, and you never think of anybody from Vietnam. And there's no sense of women being there or having any role there. Not only did they have a role, but because of them, they broke the thickest glass ceiling by going to the war and actually covering combat. Now, the United States and most of the, the the armies of World War II, for instance, did not allow women on the battlefield. So all the ones we love, in fact, they weren't covering the battlefields. And if they got on the battlefields, they were yanked off. They were sent to be with the, with the nurses. And by the time the, in the Vietnam War, that was still a prohibition. Women were not allowed. They were all outsiders. They had to pay their own way in. They had no jobs. No woman war correspondents at that time. That was an oxymoron, woman war correspondent. If they had stayed at home, they would be lucky to be at the women's page. And they all paid their way because this was the most important story in the world. And I focused on three. The American Frances Fitzgerald, long-form journalism, the Australian Kate Webb, the wire service daily reporter par excellence, and a French photographer named Catherine Lecroix. Notice it was, I, I chose them because I, I picked the discipline and then I picked the ones who were head and shoulder. And, and these were amazing. And I stood back and said, my gosh, American, Australian, and French. And those are the ones whose nations, in fact, had, had you know, a history and, and role in that war. As outsiders, they expanded war coverage. You're too young to remember, but 
most of the Vietnam War coverage in the early days, and we're talking the war from 65 to 75, the coverage was largely battlefield. You know, who's, who's won this battle? Who's won that battle? Or what did the elite politicians of Saigon up to? Were there, was there a coup plot? Was who's, what was going on in the palace and so on and so forth? It was very narrow. Yeah, very narrow. These women, because they didn't know any better, they hadn't been trained. They went out and uh, to a person, they covered the war in the country. Frances Fitzgerald probably most um, dramatically because she, no one else was doing even long-form journalism. There were some you know, news magazines like Time and Newsweek and The New Yorker, but she went on her own. And she said, okay, um, the question for me is, what is this war doing to the Vietnamese and the Vietnamese culture and the Vietnamese people? It was, just, it was radical. Um, in fact, she was considered strange within the press corps. And as a woman, of course, she didn't belong there, as they all didn't. And to make a long story short, she ended up doing such a good job that she went back to the United States and wrote a book called Fire in the Lake, published in 1972, the war still going on. It won the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, and the Bancroft History Award. This is, like, unheard of, and no book about the war before or since has come close to winning those Well, has won those awards. So head and shoulders. The French photographer... She was barely five feet tall, 85 pounds. She came with a Leica around her neck <laughs> and tied around with a shoelace. No training. She didn't speak English, so she learned it from the Marines. So this great Bridget Bardot voice saying some very foul things. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she ended up being the first woman ever to win the George Polk Award for photography and the Robert Kappa gold medal for photography. And stunning. And finally, Kate Webb, Australian. She covered combat, became a combat, became the deputy and then the bureau chief for United Press International, which was then a really strong uh, press service. And there's now an award named after her called the Kate Webb Prize for the best Asian journalist covering difficult situations with courage. That alone is worth the book. But what they did, and now I'm going to bring up a, a mutual friend named Denby Posset, um, they actually got the um, U.S. military to drop forever the prohibition against women. And that was when, uh, a fortuitous meeting, Denby was covering a Hawaiian unit, and General William Westmoreland showed up. He knew Denby because his wife played tennis with her mother. How rare is that? And he said, Denby, how long, how long have you been here? She answered a few days or whatever. He said, oh, very nice to see you. He went back to Saigon. He was furious because women were not supposed to be covering combat. And there was Denby. Powwow, they talked, and he was told by civilians in the Pentagon, there's a problem here. President Johnson did not declare war, so we have not applied any of the normal rules on journalists. In fact, Vietnam was the most open war before or since for journalists. Journalists could use their press pass to get on a helicopter, truck, show up, and and cover as long as they wanted and then come home. It's impossible now. You have to be embedded, and as I told you before, women couldn't do it. And it's because of that openness that women just walked through, and they didn't even know what they were doing, which was probably made it easier oh, because yes. they, had no, they had no idea they were breaking every rule in the book. The compromise was that the women promised that they would not ask for any special favors. General Westmoreland, like a lot of military, thought, well, if 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 the unit's under attack, they'll want to protect the woman. And right. then, you know, you compromise the unit. Yeah. yeah. That never happened. But, um, but the women said, oh, sure, we'll sign the thing. And they dropped the prohibition, and they never brought it back. Now, these women never told that story. Be- for, it took 30 years before the story to come out. And the reason was, um, to a person, they did not want to be thought of. They, wanted to, they, they knew that if all of this came out and somebody in Washington said, eh, we can't do this. So unlike today where everybody has a web page, you know, how many likes do you have? This is, they were totally under, under the 
undercover. I mean, you'd, yes, you saw their bylines, but you didn't see their pictures. You had n- no idea, no idea, no idea. And um, that's one of the reasons that I very much wanted to tell this story. And then the title, You Don't Belong Here, is the third element of what they went through. Their male colleagues were not friendly. And if they were friendly, they were too friendly in the wrong way. So they had, but um, Catherine Lacroix, the French woman, I think epitomizes it most. She did so well, so quickly, her um, colleagues slash rivals were furious. They went behind the, her back, talked to the military at uh, MACV, the military of Vietnam, uh, military command, and convinced them to pull her um, press pass. They're totally illegal. The the reason for doing it was because, quote, she was too competitive, sharp elbows, foul language. I mean, that's every person who signed that letter against her. I mean, in other words, she was acting like a man. And she was almost thrown out, but one of the heroes in the book, uh, the head of Associated Press Photography, Horace Foss, came to her rescue and, and essentially showed that this is illegal. You don't throw, you don't take a press pass away unless they do something like playing too much on the black market with their money or something truly illegal, but she didn't. So, she, And there are smaller episodes like that for all mm-hmm. women. They did not belong there. And to a person, they've all said they felt lonely. And, and I was one of them at the end, which is another reason why I wanted to do it. I knew I knew their stories. I knew Because you saw I, I, how I, they were treated. And, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, Kate Webb met me in Hong Kong on my way to Phnom Penh, and, and I was appalled that they had been forgotten totally forgotten. So I wrote this book, and already it's been fabulous. Catherine Lecroix has been rediscovered. Le Monde did a two-page, big two-page spread on her in August, and she's part of an exhibit in Paris right now, her photographs about women war photographers. There's a, a radio documentary about her. And they had all preceded by how did we not, how did we not celebrate this woman? And so I guess when you watch the war in Ukraine now, I mean, that just seems so odd to see everything unfold on TV the way it has. The journalist in me says, this will make it more effective. The journalist in me said, now they can see it. And and the women have been performing brilliantly. Clarissa Ward and Christiane Amidpour has actually been at the border already. And I think it helps, you know, social media will get a lot of credit, but I think it really helps to see the journalists there on the spot, and it's exactly, and they're doing what those women wanted to do back in Vietnam. They're showing the entire consequences of a war, not just this, you know, who hit what, but the entire consequences. I mean, I thought of Frankie Fitzgerald, how she was the only one who would go to the hospital after a, a, a civilian hospital after a fight to show just what the civilians were suffering how Kate took her vacation to spend with the Vietnamese because her her bosses didn't want her to um, to waste there. her time being there. And Catherine and her really radical photographs to show the emotion of the Vietnamese people on the war because she thought, I'm not sure that any more than 20% are in favor of one side or the other. It's And I see this happening right there. And I'm I'm just so impressed. I can't believe it. And I'm so glad that women are very much part of that. So you don't belong here, but you really do. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and I uh, appreciate your efforts in putting these stories together so um, they get shared. Thank you. We have been talking to Elizabeth Becker, author of You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. The paperback edition was just released. Food, friend, or foe? We are talking about the Pua'a, the pig, a magnificent beast. And that is the title of a film by Tess Gerritsen, the former Windward Oahu resident now calls the East Coast home. We talked to her about the documentary that she produced with her son that was released earlier this year. It airs on PBS Hawaii this week. Here's Gerritsen. 
As we chat, you have since relocated to Maine, but you lived here in the islands for a little more than a decade. So you, you've, you're familiar with our love affair with Kalua Pig and Lau yes. Lau. Yes. So yeah, I mean, you know, knowing what you know, I mean, how did you approach this film? Well, I approached it from a culinary uh, point of view. I mean, I'm I'm Chinese American, and you know the Chinese. We pork is a big part of our cuisine. And if there's a way to make something nutritious, delicious, somehow the Chinese will do it. So I was curious about the pork taboo. I was traveling in Turkey and couldn't find, couldn't get bacon uh, because it's a Muslim country. And I began to think about food taboos. Why would a culture uh, ban something that is nutritious and and tasty? So that became uh, the quest. Uh, I told my my son, let's let's do a movie on on food taboos. And the more we delved into it, the more we realized that the pig um, is quite unique in this whole thing because the pig has so many, it inspires so many reactions from people, a lot of them negative. So we focused on the pig. I saw the film and I, I just thought it was wonderful because it did explore so many different aspects. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the pig, food, friend and foe. Yeah, it is because, and we looked at all aspects of it, not only culinary, but also we uh, interviewed a lot of um, pig, pet pig owners. They were an interesting group of people because you don't really think of pigs as being good pets. I mean, the, the general feeling is that pigs are dirty. It turns out they're not. They're very, very clean animals. They're very intelligent. They're smarter than the pet dogs of all these pet pig owners. And they can be affectionate, but they also have a dark side. You know, they're a little bit too much like humans. There are nice ones, and then there are, there are cranky ones. So um, we wanted to explore just that aspect of, of living with a pig in your house and sometimes sleeping with the pig in your bed. There were several people who did that. And then finally, we looked at pigs as foes. Now, in Hawaii, you probably have the same problem that they have in a lot of states across the country, which is pigs destroying farmland. Um, They're very destructive animals. They root, they destroy crop, and they can go through a, a field of corn and pretty much chew it up within a night. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with these feral swine that attack people? And that, that can be dangerous. That was the final, sort of the third part of our story. Yes, I mean, they do a number on our watershed areas, you know. I mean, when I lived along New, New Monopoly Road, they used to come down and, and root <laughs> around. They can be very destructive, especially, you know, for the, the native plants the native species that we're all trying to protect here. And it can be dangerous. I mean, I have to um, point out that there have been people who've been killed by uh, feral swine. Uh, Certainly in Texas, there was one woman who was killed just going from her car to the house. And when they gang up together, you know, when you have these sounders of 50 50 wild boar, that's a pretty scary thing to to come up against. And these pigs do get quite large. They can. It depends on their diet. Uh, You know, there are stories of pigs uh, in Japan that are enormous. And farm hogs can be 800 pounds, 1,000 pounds. So those are really big animals. They're like little hippos. Well, and we've seen, you know, the uh, the, the trend, the fad of the pot be- the little potbelly pigs. You know, I know we had a former lawmaker here, uh, the late Connie Chun. She had a pet pig. Everybody knew mm-hmm. her, you know. <laughs> you know, as you, I guess, embrace, you know, the pua'a uh, in all its magnificence. And then, you know, as you said, it, it, it can be a foe, a fiend. It can, and because it's so intelligent, it makes it a, a really quite a formidable foe. We interview trappers and hunters in Texas, and they talk about how this is a difficult animal to, to defeat. If you don't trap the entire group, one gets away and tells the others about this trap, and they communicate, they plan. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is something that I don't think we have seen before, certainly in, in the New World, because the pig was imported. And it is it is causing problems in probably about 40 states now. Here we have the pig hunters, you know, who help to try and keep things, you know, in check. But these pigs, like you said, people love the roast pig uh, at yeah. your neighborhood bark, uh, backyard, your neighborhood luau. But, you know, there, there are cultures, like you said, the Muslim cultures, Jewish uh, cultures that just don't eat swine. Yes. And that was the the thing that set us on the journey is why do they choose not to eat swine? So we, one of the the most interesting interviews we had is with a Jewish scholar right here in Maine 
who specializes in dietary practices based on religion and culture. And the question is, is it is it trichinosis? Because that was what I heard when I was an anthropology student. Is it something else? Is it because of climate change in the Middle East two, you know, two or 3,000 years ago? And our Jewish scholars felt that it comes right down to religious and cultural identity. You identify your foe or your friend among humans by what they eat or what they choose not to eat. Well, I just recently discovered something called uh, prosciutto chips. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds delicious. (laughs) Yes, but, but I don't know. Do you have a favorite pork dish or are you vegetarian? Oh, um, I'm not vegetarian. I have to say that I love pork dumplings because <laughs> yeah, that's the Chinese part of me, right? And um, and I have even tackled uh, the Italian dish porchetta, which involves uh, using pork belly, yes. uh, wrapping it around pork loin with, with herbs. So there are so many ways that pork can be um, used. And every part of that animal really is pretty usable from its tail down to its down to its feet. And, you know, you end your film with a saying from uh, Winston Churchill about, you know, how smart the pig is uh, <laughs> and non-judgmental, I guess. But I, I guess I had to chuckle after seeing that film. And I, I thought of that poem, you know, where where the drunk lays down in the gutter and the pig that was there got up and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I think we have to... The, the real thing about this movie is we want people to respect this animal, whether you eat it or um, you're afraid of it. This animal is worthy of our respect because it is so much like us. And maybe that's why we're afraid of them as well, because we recognize some of our own bad aspects in the in the animal, the pig. And so, gosh, is there anything that you learned uh, as you went on this journey to, you know, discover everything you wanted to know about the, about the pig uh, that surprised you? Yeah, well, it, what surprised me is how, you know, various ways of farming the pig leads to a different kind of an animal. There is a, a, a farm in England, and uh, the pig keeper there, the man named Ian, treats his pigs with utmost respect. They're, they're free in, in the fields. They never bite. They are the most gentle animals, and eventually, of course, they will go to slaughter. But this is the way animals should be raised, um, you know, happy until the moment that they are sacrificed. Um, so I, I think that uh, a lo- another part of the film is, is how our farming practices could really be improved just from a humanitarian standpoint. And then what about your son? Did he have any, uh, you know, revelations uh, while you folks are working on this film? We, you know, we shared these all these revelations together. It was, it was uh, what was great about working with my son is we respected each other's um, ideas. We both were helping to edit this film at the end, and uh, I think what struck us was uh, how pet pig owners are sometimes kind of interesting. I don't know what the word is for them, but I mean, we, there's a woman who sews clothes for pet pigs. There's another woman who has an elevator to help her pig get from the first floor up to her bedroom. And there's a whole range of people who pretty much, you know, think of their pigs as being members of the family and take them into the bedroom and to sleep with them. So, yeah, it's, you know, people come in all shapes and sizes just like pigs do. (laughs) Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the film, and uh, I'm sure our listeners out there uh, will as well. So uh, hopefully they will tune in. Uh, to PBS Hawaii uh, as this airs. Oh, thank you very much. Mahalo. (laughs) That was Tess Gerritsen, who, along with her son Josh, produced the film Magnificent Beast. It's about our love-hate relationship with the pig, the pua'a. Gerritsen, a former Hawaii resident, now lives in Maine. Uh, That film screens this Wednesday, April 27th at 10 p.m. on PBS Hawaii. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, committed to connecting the Hawaiian Islands by providing inter-island shipping with cargo services, including Aloha Next Flight Out and Aloha Standard Overnight. AlohaAirCargo.com. We've talked about cancer screening and prevention, but what is the actual experience like for patients? 
I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a local expert and a patient about his course of care. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from the Maui Chamber Orchestra. Violinist Iggy Jang of the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra performs and conducts music of Vivaldi and more May 7th and 8th at Eau Theater. Tickets at MauiChamberOrchestra.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We've got reports of a new massive planet forming just a stone's throw away from Earth. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence with the details in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, Also, things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we are so fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips back with us. He's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What are you toting along with you this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn again in our eastern skies before dawn. The moon this week will be passing through its new moon phase, and so skies will remain dark, perfect for stargazing. I know some folks have been doing some stargazing up at Mauna Kea, and you've got a report about it? Indeed. Astronomers using the Subaru telescope atop Mauna Kea and the Hubble Space Telescope have directly imaged what appears to be a massive young planet forming around a star that is a mere 500 light years away. Wow. The star is A.B. Aurigae, and in the constellation of Aurigae, the charioteer, or as we know it here in Hawaii, Hokule, the celestial wreath of stars. The star itself is also very young and part of a star-forming region that is host to many such infant solar systems. Yeah, that's really cool. Hubble still being useful for stuff. And so, Chris, what kind of planet is this thing going to be? Well, judging by its size, it's probably going to end up as a gas giant similar to Jupiter and Saturn in our own solar system. Although it will probably be around nine times more massive than Jupiter, which is pretty big. The young planet itself is embedded within the swirling mass of the protoplanetary disk around the star. And it's rather close, too, right? 500 light years. So once we get our warp speed thing figured out, we'll be there in no time. It is a stone's throw away. (laughs) (laughs) And that protoplanetary disk, this is the good stuff when it comes to solar system formation, correct? Oh yeah, it contains all the construction material necessary for building planets. Rock, iron, water, ice, you name it. This young solar system kind of resembles cosmic pizza dough that's being mixed in a galactic KitchenAid. That's exactly what I would describe it as. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I guess this uh, this cosmic cooking demonstration, as you've sort of described it, we're going to have to wait a little bit for results, yeah? Yeah, as you know, uh, with a cooking time of a few million years, it's going to be a long <laughs> while before we see what kind of planet emerges from this celestial cook-off. <laughs> like watching paint dry. And you will keep us abreast uh, in the interim. It's Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can catch Stargazer yourself at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Culinary Institute of the Pacific, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com You know, all this week we're going to be spotlighting the hibiscus flower Princess Kaiolani's father, Archibald Cleghorn, took a liking to the garden flower and brought in varieties that seemed exotic at the time. Hybridizing hibiscus became a popular hobby, and we plan to explore that process of crossing natives with non-natives to create some wild varieties. Here in the islands, our state flower is the native yellow variety, but there are far more white native ones. Uh, hibiscus, white hibiscus, and what sets them apart from other flowers is that they have a fragrance. To learn more about the story behind this native flower, we turn to Heidi Bornhorst, a horticulturist, botanist, and native plant specialist. We have amazing native Hawaiian hibiscus in all kinds of colors. So we have the native whites that are fragrant. And Oahu, Kauai, and Molokai all have their own unique native fragrant white, 
And then there's many varieties and subspecies. Like on Oahu, there's a different one that grows on the Waianae Mountain. And there's a couple different ones in various folds of the Ka'olau. And so the whites are fragrant, and they're the good mother or grandmother plants. And people were fascinated with, we used to call them exotics, now we call them aliens but bringing in hibiscus from around the world. And then they started hybridizing. And the native whites are really easy to hybridize. So many of the big hybrids, like we call them a dinner plate hybrid, they're so big they're like a plate, like that hibiscus lady Joe Coriel grows. They have Hawaiian blood in them, or Hawaiian sap. And then we have native reds, oranges. We have a native yellow which is our state flower. We have a kind of pinky purple one that grows in wetlands. If people say they don't like natives or they're too scrubby and weedy, you show them a native hibiscus, get them to smell it, and then they change their tune. Well, now I've been fortunate to take a peek at your backyard, and you have (laughs) uh, some wonderful white hibiscus growing there including yeah. one that you, that you shared that you saved from the H3. Yeah, we were there with Jimmy Pang, and who was really into ohia lehua and palms, and there were all these native white hibiscus. And the archaeologist, and I was demurely taking a cutting, and she said, you know, Heidi, the bulldozer is coming right through here tomorrow. So collect as much as you can. So we collected a lot of cuttings and hardly any of them grew. Even though I had the perfect setup, um, I was getting my master's at UH. So I had the UH greenhouse and I could do rooting hormone and I could do mist. So very few of them grew, but finally we got one or two to grow. And then once you get it in cultivation, then you can propagate more. And we really encourage that for people to not collect it from the wild. Leave the wild ones alone, take care of them, but grow the good ones in your garden. Interesting. So now, do you have a favorite of the native hibiscus? My favorite probably is the Kauai white, hibiscus waimei, and it grows from low elevation, kokei, all the way up Malka. And that one's really fragrant, and in cultivation, it's a tough plant. It hardly gets past, and amazingly, it's somewhat drought tolerant. Now, for some of these plants, I mean, can you pick them up at the farmer's market or, you know, at the nursery department of the hardware store? um, We have a few courageous nurseries who grow natives. Huikuma Oleola is the main one on Oahu. Rick and Matt, they grow fabulous natives. And recently, they got shafted by the big box store, but they're at City Mill. City Mill is doing a nice thing with natives. Or you can go to their nursery. And then Glenn Nii and Judy Nii, they both, they're out in Hawaii Kai, and they grow native hibiscus among their hybrids. And you can also go to Ko'olau Farmers and other nursery stores and be a consumer. Ask for the native. And what is it that you love so much about the native hibiscus? Well, the white ones, they're fragrant. And they're a two-day flower. And you know me, Catherine, I always wear flowers in my hair. So I have this little florist trick where I'll pick a bud a day or two in advance and put it in water, or you can put it in the fridge to slow it down, and then it opens perfectly for your event. And you can put them in a lay like that, in the hakule, or wear them in your hair, or decorate with them. Like I did my friend's wedding, that was her color theme, really hard color theme, but um, the native hibiscus made her wedding awesome. Wow, so that's the tip. Pick them when they're buds and put them in the fridge. <laughs> and, and, and just like we need hydration, plants need it. Like even when you say it's a drought-tolerant plant, you still got to water it. You know, this isn't Arizona. You've got to water it. And any flowers you pick... If you can get them into a deep water soak right away, they'll last better. 
And then of the ones from the different islands, are they harder to find? Well, I do love the Molokai white, and I have that growing in my yard. Years ago, I bought a little four-inch plant from a plant sale at Waimea Arboretum. That's a lovely fragrance, and it's like pure white with a little bit of yellow highlight. And it has a nice fragrance. The Oahu ones have a nice fragrance. That The ones from H3, it's Punaluensis. That has a great fragrance. Now, as far as the other hibiscus that are found around the world, do any of them have fragrances, or, or are the only one? Just Hawaiian. Wow. There might be some other rare ones from other interesting islands that are fragrant. But... Well, it sounds like, so while we've had these natives here, the trend, I guess, among the folks that were really into these plants was to bring in the hybrids. Right. People like new things. They like exotics. And then, you know, no TV and Internet back then. So there were hibiscus societies. And people were really into hybridizing. And they also used those good horticulture techniques of air layering and grafting. So, like, people would make a hibiscus with different species and varieties grafted onto it. And when they brought in ones from Africa, from Fiji, from China, you know, they tried to hybridize them with the natives. And that's where we got this whole array of hybrids. Now, do any of the hybrids have fragrance? No, but one old lady, she took one of my classes, and she said that growing up over there, chicken coop, was a double pink that was fragrant. And so I've talked to Jill and other people about, let's back cross these double pinks you find with the native and and get that double pink fragrant one again. That would be so cool. Well, Haven't so. found it yet, but, you know, we could recreate the hybrid. We've been learning from horticulturist Heidi Bornhorse about native hibiscus. Bornhorse says natives require special TLC. She offers these tips Start with good soil and lots of organics. Make sure you clear your weeds and grasses to keep the offenders from zapping the nutrients. And steer clear of weed whackers and power tools that could injure or burn the native plants. Give them a fighting chance to thrive. Tomorrow, we meet the hibiscus lady, Jill Coriel, and learn more about hybridizing. That's it for today. Calling all welders. April is National Welding Month, and we take a closer look at the trade. Have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.